1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, rather than flee temptation, David gives in to it. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. Once again, that's 2 Samuel 11, verse 3.
2: 2 Samuel chapter 11, and look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman. In David's inflamed lust, he now begins to pull other people onto the roof to ask if any of them know who she is. Can you imagine how horrid that is? I mean, you're up on your roof, you know, and you, you see this lady bathing. You're not supposed to be looking, but now you're not just looking. You're drinking it in, and then, you know, you're calling a couple servants up. You go, anybody know that, that gal? Now? now you brought other people into this. That's how inflamed David is in his lust at this point, and that's why it's so dangerous to let it get to this point because you're not thinking correctly at that point all the normal stoppers that are in mind that would normally keep you from doing something are gone. All of the, the speed bumps and the bob barricades and the warning signs that are in front of you, you've already bypassed them all. All that's left is the, the big maw of the cliff. And you're going 90 miles an hour towards it. And one of them said, lit, one is not in the original text, so I don't. we don't know if multiple people said this or whatever, but Somehow, someone says to David, or they say to David, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Again, I don't know if that's the best translation, because is not this literally reads, Don't you recognize her, David? David, that's the that's wife of, of one of your best soldiers. That's the, the daughter of one of your best soldiers. That's the granddaughter of your chief advisor. Don't you recognize Bathsheba, David? Iliam is listed in 2 Samuel 23-34 as a member of David's elite forces. He had a group of 37 men that were his most loyal and most trusted soldiers, many of them who had been with him since the cave in Adullam. These are men he's known for decades. David's mighty men is what the scripture calls them. Eliam himself is the son of Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted advisors, who, by the way, Ahithophel is the one who helps Absalom bring a rebellion against David. I wonder why. Uriah, 2 Samuel 23, 39, another of David's mighty men. He's a Hittite, a Gentile, and yet he's a Gentile with a name that means light of Jehovah. I can promise you that was not his given name. He's a Canaanite, someone that was under the ban, someone that God told Israel to wipe out, and yet, like Rahab, was spared because he put his faith in the Lord. And not just spared, but used mightily by God as one of David's most elite fighting soldiers, one of his closest friends. For David to act on these lusts, he has to perform five betrayals. First, against the Lord. In Numbers 15, 37 through 41, it says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations. And they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which you used to go a whoring, that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. I just celebrated my twenty-fifth anniversary. and My wife got me this. So now I've got two reminders. <laughs> this ring, however, is not just a reminder of my promise to her. It's a reminder of my promise to him. That I would give myself to her and her only. And to death should separate us, so the Lord Jesus should come back. David, he's a Jew. He wears the shawl with the tassels, with the blue ribbon. Very likely wearing it at this moment. And he's supposed to look down, and all those little knots that they make, the tassels, they're called, they're representative of God's commands. David has to look at those and go, I don't care. His first betrayal has to be against the Lord. His second betrayal is against Bathsheba. Bathsheba is a fellow believer and a married woman. And he betrays her by causing her to sin. That's exactly how Leviticus 20 verse 10 describes the situation. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. David betrays Bathsheba. His third and fourth betrayals are against Bathsheba's father and Bathsheba's grandfather, two men who trusted David. Eliam is very much likely out on the battlefield right now. Two men who are loyal to David. David will write a psalm about how deeply Ahithophel's betrayal will hurt him because he said, you are my trusted advisor, one of my closest friends. Yes, David, but he's not the only one to betray in the relationship. Fifthly and finally, of course, David betrays Uriah the man who had committed his life to Bathsheba and who fought to protect her and the rest of his nation from harm in loyalty to country and to his king, David. The answer David receives from whoever tells him, don't you recognize Bathsheba, and tells David who she's associated with, reminds David, the answer that David receives contains five speed bumps that God puts in front of David to keep him from acting on the rising lusts in his heart. Five reasons to back out. Number one, I can't do this to the Lord. Adultery is wrong. Number two, she's a married woman. Treating a fellow Israeli as an object for my pleasure is wickedness. Number three, I can't do this to my friends and betray them. That would be selfish. Number four, I can't do this to a family who trusts me to look out for them before I look out for myself. This would be an abuse of my authority. And number five, these men stood by me when Saul hunted me down. They risked their lives for me over and over so we could all someday find a home and do things the right way in Israel. This would be ungrateful. There are so many stop signs and barricades that David has to ignore in his own heart to get to verse 4. And may I say to you, this is why sexual sin is so destructive. Because it is riddled with selfishness. People say that Christians are obsessed with sex, that we're prudes. That's not it at all. We just understand sex power in a person's life for good or evil. And while sin is sin, the Bible says that sexual sin is unique in the devastation it causes. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 with me. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. We mentioned it earlier. Flee fornication. Flee sexual sin. Why? Every sin that a man does, verse 18 says, is without the body. The word there means independent of the body. But in contrast, sexual sin, he that commits fornication sins against his own body. Paul doesn't mean that our body receives the sin. That's not what he's saying. Every, you know, when you do this, your body receives the sin. <laughs> there are plenty of other sins that my body can receive, gluttony, drug abuse, All those things affect our bodies. But what Paul is saying is that my body becomes the instrument of sin. You see, in the sexual act, I give a part of myself away. You give a part of yourself away. Now, that's beautiful when it's between married couples who treat one another with dignity and with kindness. It's beautiful. There's a, a... an even deeper oneness that's created, a a deeper bond, a, a holy bond that's created when that's the case. But that reality of giving a part of yourself away is horrible when it's done outside those boundaries. It ends up creating an unholy bond, one that is very difficult to break, one where I end up losing a piece or pieces of myself to someone who will not care for that piece, but will use it up whenever they want. This is, by the way, why Paul talks about sexual kindness between married couples in 1 Corinthians 6, 3 through 5. He says, Render unto the husband, render unto the wife, do benevolence. The word benevolence here means kindness. Kindness. If you're married today, the, and I don't want to get too detailed, but your sexual relationship, your intimate relationship should be the top label on top of it is nice. Like, I'm nice to that person. I'm kind to that person. It's selfless, not selfish. Husbands, do that for your wives. Wives, do that for your husbands. Consider one another that you don't separate for long periods of time unless it's for fasting and prayer because you don't want to tempt each other. You don't want to discourage each other. You don't want this to become a, a place where walls are built up in your relationship. It's, it's a sensitive place. It should be dealt with with Kindness. In Hebrews chapter thirteen verse four, we see God's design for sex. We see in Hebrews thirteen four, it says, Marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but King James says whoremongers, you gotta have a King James Bible so you can have that word. Just the sexually immoral and adulterers, God will judge. This is God's design for sex. Powerful, beautiful, pure, tender. Now, when we examine David's life, unfortunately, David's already crossed all of God's boundaries there by taking multiple wives, right? I mean, he's already, he's already thrown out the, the trust that's supposed to be there in the intimate relationship of a husband and a wife. He's already thrown out the idea of uh, the, the marriage bed being undefiled. And so when you keep giving pieces of yourself away like this, it warps your thinking To the point that you seek to satisfy your lust, no matter what the boundaries are or who it hurts. And so in verse 4, David takes something that isn't his, and David sent messengers and took her. Now, we can see that and go, wow, that sounds violent. There is no violence in this word, there's no force actually in this word. Of this, all language experts agree. In fact, that it says she came later on in the verse makes it clear that she came of her own free will. She was not taken against her free will. And yet, and yet, by sending for her, David took something that wasn't his. I love what the expositor's commentary, it says, master of everything he surveys, David has everything, and yet he does not have enough. He doesn't have enough. David, who wouldn't put himself on the throne by taking Saul's life, even when his own life was at risk, seizes woman after woman after woman to slake his lust, and now he finally takes one who belongs to someone else. That that is the deception of sexual sin. It claims you will find satisfaction But as a famous musician said, you never find satisfaction. You don't. You always need more. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33, it says, But whosoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that does it destroys his own soul. A wound and a dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Adultery leaves a stain on your soul, one that only the blood of Jesus can wash away. But even then, it is hard because even though the Lord forgives and the Lord can restore, everyone affected by an affair remembers. And the enemy is quick to bring reminders. Whether it's of your own failure or it's someone else you hurt through your failure. And That is why the person who does this, Proverbs says, lacks understanding. They aren't thinking about the long-term consequences of such behavior. It's why most affairs, when it finally comes out, they, instead of turning the person around, it tends to just send them further off the deep end. Because facing the reality of what you did is almost too painful. So better just keep doing what you're doing to keep seeking to satisfy the urge than actually face reality that I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. And so David takes something that isn't his and then David and Bathsheba agree to have an affair. In verse four, it says, and she came in. The language came in It's really hard, again, to translate this into English because it carries the image of motion toward David. The image here is not of a woman who is frightened, a woman who is intimidated. It's not an image of a woman who feels pressure. It's not an image of any of these things. It's an image of a willing forward motion toward David. The language contains no indication of resistance from Bathsheba. Now, of course, You know, just like with David, like, why are you not going out and fighting against the Ammonites? We kind of wonder here, Bathsheba, why why are you not, why are you engaging in this? David's, I mean, he's wronged you all sorts of ways already, even just inviting you up to the palace. Why are you engaging in this? all sorts of motives have been postulated for for her vanity that oh the king's got his eyes on me lust for power the position that she could have if she was attached to the king physical attraction i mean all these things are there some even postulate based on first 1 kings 117 when she comes in and says david you made an agreement that my son solomon would be your heir you'd be your successor some postulate that she agreed to the affair with an agreement that if she got pregnant the child would become david's successor Truth is, we can speculate all we want, but the Bible is silent on why she entered into this affair with David. It doesn't tell us. We don't know. Now, because we don't know, this has led some to go the opposite direction and absolve Bathsheba of any wrongdoing. What could she do? David was the most powerful man in Israel. Resistance was impossible. <laughs> and yet, the Bible speaks very clearly when instances of rape or abuse of authority and pressure are involved in situations like this. And none of that language is used here. You need to remember this. Yes, a common woman, those things might have fit the bill. But Bathsheba is the wife of a high-ranking military man with multiple family ties to powerful men in David's government. She was not powerless, like most women in Israeli society would have been. And so the scriptures need to be taken at face value. David invites her into an affair and she accepts the invitation. And so the scripture says, and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness. The story spares us the awful details and just says it happened. And the reason that they were able to act on the wishes for an affair is because she had just been cleared from her time of uncleanness from her monthly cycle which, of course, also put her at the time of ovulation. But that's a topic for next Sunday, part two. Now, David and Bathsheba's son Solomon, he would later write Proverbs 5, what we read in our scripture reading. So let's just return there. And I know I'm out of time, but I kind of want to finish this up. So if you'll indulge me. In Proverbs 5.15, Solomon writes, "Drink waters out of your own cistern and running waters out of your own well." Yeah, obviously, he's making a, an allusion here, an illustration to the intimate relationship. You've, you've got your own well already. Why are you, why are you looking to drink from other wells? Verse sixteen, the Old King James reads it like, "Do this." But the New King James that I read with the Scripture reading makes it sound a little better. Old King James says, let your fountains be dispersed abroad. But the idea is, should you let your fountains be dispersed abroad? And should, you, should your rivers just be flowing in the streets? A little bit pictorial language there, but that's the idea. No, they should not be. Let them be only be only thine own and not strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. In other words, God wants to bless your well. He wants to, to bless what, what you engage in in this area of your life. And how you do that? By rejoicing with the wife of your youth. And then it gives details of what that looks like that I won't go into. And then it gives a warning. Verse 20, why will you, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a, of a stranger? Someone who's not your spouse. Listen, David didn't have these words, but he had the commands of God. He had lots of speed bumps from God. We don't have that excuse, though. We have all these words. We have access to all these truths. And so I say this to you tonight. If you are flirting with someone who is not your spouse, if you are involved in an affair, if you are fantasizing adultery, if you're watching or reading entertainment about those who commit adultery, stop. God sees. It tells us here that the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his goings. God sees. You know, I've heard people say, you know, when you go and, you go and do something that is involved in sexual sin, you leave Jesus behind. No, you don't. You drag him through it with you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you leave Jesus behind. He sees, it says here. God saw every moment of David and Bathsheba's affair that the scripture mercifully leaves out for us. Every painful moment that it broke his heart. And if the fact that God sees isn't enough to grab hold of your heart, those sins, it tells us they're a snare. It says, his own iniquity shall take the wicked himself. He shall be held with the cords of his sin. They're a trap. That leads to destroying everything you've built if you are messing around in these areas, you will go off the path. You will end up making foolish decisions because when you give yourself to sexual sin, you're never the one in control because you're the one who's giving away the most valuable thing you have in every transaction, a piece of yourself. You can't be in control when that's the case. It is no coincidence, and I'll leave you with this, That Jesus uses serious language right after he talks about adultery. Whosoever looks upon a woman lust in his heart has committed adultery in his heart already. And then what does Jesus say? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What's Jesus saying? We should all be walking around eyeless and handless? No. What Jesus is saying is take sexual sin seriously. I've said this before, but one of my favorite illustrations of how you deal with sexual sin in your life is the movie scene from Fireproof, where you know Kirk Cameron, the, the, the actor, who the, plays the lead, he's got a pornography problem, and he's it's up there in front of him, he's trying to start walking with the Lord, and, and he's got this temptation that pops up in front of him on the screen, and what does he do? He clicks. And of course, as soon as he clicks... And the guilt hits him, he goes and he starts reading the book that his dad gave him. And his dad talks about how when temptation comes, there's only one way to deal with it. You've got to eradicate it. And he takes the computer monitor out and he takes a baseball bat to it. That's what Jesus means when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin like this, cut it off, pluck it out. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There is only one way to deal with sexual sin. And it is extreme prejudice. Because If you don't, you can never recreate and renew the mind so you can start thinking correctly about God's creation. That that person that you're looking at or flirting with or having the affair with is someone he made. It's someone's son, it's someone's daughter, it's someone's husband, it's someone's wife, it's someone's dad, it's someone's mom. It's someone that God created. They are not an object for your use or my use. I said this is part one because I realize this is a heavy message and probably leaves many of you feeling condemned. Understand there's more to the story and we will get to that. If you're involved in these things, I didn't say these things to condemn you. I said them to challenge you. And I said them so that you'll run to the Savior who can rescue us from these things. So if you're struggling with sexual sin and my best guess is that many of us are because of what the numbers say. If you are, come boldly before a stone of grace. Find the help, the grace, and the mercy that you need from your great high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted and yet never gave into it. He Can help you overcome.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play.